The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. The regular show will be up online later this week, but today something a little bit different. Over the coming weeks, journalist and political commentator Joanna Ramiro will be hosting a series of conversations on journalism in the neoliberal era. The series is called Red Hacks, and first up is a conversation Joanna had with renowned broadcaster and author, the always thought-provoking Paul Mason. Hello and welcome to Red Hacks, a series of conversations about journalism, socialism and being a journalist in a neoliberal world. My name is Joanna Romero. In the next few weeks I'll be having a series of conversations with writers and editors and photojournalists and reporters about how it feels to be a journalist in these turbulent times, particularly if you don't quite subscribe to Rupert Murdoch's or even Catherine Viner's editorial agenda. For those of you listening in, we are recording in a pub in South London, so if you hear any extra noise, that'll be why. Uh, Otherwise, we'll try and keep this smooth and steady. And who better to start us off in this conversation than the prestigious colleague, longtime comrade, famously infamous, or is it infamously famous, Paul Mason. Hi, Paul. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Obviously, you need no introduction. You've been uh, an editor in Newsnight, uh, economics editor at Channel 4 News, and now a freelance writer, opinion maker as well as opinion writer. Um, First and foremost, I kind of wanted to start with where it all began. Uh, So if you could just tell us, you know, after several years as an activist on the left, how did you really get into journalism? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I mean, I grew up in the, what we know called the Keynesian era, the 1960s and 70s, in a working class family, in a very cultured and I would say socially cohesive uh, society, a kind of mining and cotton mill town. To us, journalism was important. So we used to read the Daily Mirror and the Sunday Mirror religiously. And th- this was at a time when tabloid newspapers carried news, but more importantly, they also carried opinion and not just like sort of hot takes, but really considered essays and opinion. One of the journalists I used to read more or less religiously was Keith Waterhouse. Now, today, who is he? Uh, He's the person who wrote a novel called Billy Liar, which is about a working class kid who's growing out of that culture that I grew up in. So Keith Waterhouse was an incredibly trenchant left Labour critic of the Labour government of my childhood. So I knew what journalism could do. Then, in the 1970s, so in the 1970s, we're we're in the Vietnam War, 
And even, even as a young kid, you knew the Vietnam War was going on. You know, you were so suddenly surrounded, like, from being surrounded by people in suits, you were surrounded by people in caftans. And um, they were all obsessed with the Vietnam War. So you started watching TV. And on TV was another incredibly uh, influential journalist with me, John Pilger. Pilger, at this time, was allowed to report um, on, on TV news. And he wasn't the only one. Pilger is the hero of that era, but there were many other TV, you know, foreign affairs reporters, war reporters, who took it on themselves to report the horribleness, the horrific reality of the Vietnam War and, the, you know, Laos, Cambodia. Um, that journalism as well left its mark on me. And so when I became, like, in my late teens, interested in politics, it was obvious that the sources of politics to me weren't just like Marx textbooks, they were journalism. When I talk to young journalists, I always direct them towards uh, Michael Herr's book, Dispatches, which is an example for me of what a socially-minded progressive journalist can do in a conflict, which is to bring reportage and analysis to the horrific reality of the situation. So I'm just mentioning three journalists, all white men, of course, but that was the era of white men, uh, all actually iconoclasts uh, and from outside the system, who, when I came to be politically active, were influential with me. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that long before I became a journalist, I was a left-wing political activist, a student activist. I knew that journalism had the power to change things. How did you then do that jump from being an activist onto journalism? I mean, because for, for, for my generation, and certainly for people who will listen to, to us today, even those who are not journalists, will be asking, well, how did you get into this, for most people, seemingly quite exclusive yeah. arena, um, very Oxbridge-oriented? This is one of the huge problems that journalism has become the, 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 the arena of the elite when... You know, in the era I grew up in, it was a route for working class people into a, prof a quite lowly profession, but a profession that was part of the political setup. So, my story is quite simple. Left wing student studying music and politics. I was better at music than politics, so I ended up as a musicologist. Now, as a musicologist, so I worked at Loughborough University for two years, I ran a, con a concert series, and I wrote reviews, and I wrote articles, and I wrote. And so I'd always been writing. I was always a, also a member of a Trotskyist group. And so we ran a monthly newspaper and I wrote the articles and was taught to write what we'd now call sort of analysis and comment, you know, reportage there. Um, I was taught by really good people how to write. And when I say that, I mean, if you think journalism school is, is pretty tough, and if you, see, if you think being a lowly intern in a newspaper is pretty tough, it was also pretty tough to be in with people who'd been in 68, May 68, been to the Portuguese Revolution, yeah, which I know you, you with your Portuguese background will know about, um, been on barricades in communes with people, and they'd say, no, what you, they'd say, no, what you've written is shit, rewrite it. I mean, in a far more sort of brutal way than the bourgeois version. So I had a really good training in rigor. And then, in my early 30s, I just decided I didn't want to be a musicologist anymore. And so I talked my way with essentially subbing and editorial skills that I'd gained from both academia and the left into the very low rungs of business journalism. One of the first magazines I worked on was called Plant Manager's Journal. 
And at the end of uh, Have I Got News For You these days, they show up these 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 little monthly journals. But at the time, Plant Manager's Journal, which was a, a magazine for, for people who run fleets of diggers, yeah, or tractors, hiring them out to farmers and construction sites, made money. And the issues that we used to produce were 72 pages long. And it was the ad, ad-ed ratio, the adver- advertising to editorial ratio was two to one. We made money, we had a good time, uh, we went to the pub. My mentor on that journal uh, was an old Geordie guy, and he said, the art of being a journalist is to be able to drink 13 pints of Guinness at lunchtime and get through to five o'clock while still turning in good copy. This was the world I entered in the early 90s as a, not a trainee journalist, nobody trained me. I went straight in and was basically um, sub-editing and basically churning out that that magazine um, to great delight by the bosses who owned it, Reed Elsevier, it was making money. The fact is, being an act, not just an activist, but a politically engaged person gives you critical skills and it means you know how the world works. And that what it equips you to understand is that everything that happens is likely to go wrong. Now, a lot of people come out of university assuming that everything that sort of has happens is likely to go right. And that's not a good, ex- that's not a good attitude to have if you're a journalist. Yes, tell me how, how you felt it changed. Okay, how it, how it changed is this. I worked for the Reed Business Empire for a good half decade, working my way up to deputy editor of, of a magazine, Computer Weekly. The first thing that has changed, and I'm not sure when it changed, is that y- y- journalism was professionalised. And I think that's good, because I talked my way into it in a way that you can't really do now. I, I think I did. Yeah, well, you did, <laughs> brilliantly, but it's still quite rare. You need good people skills. I'm not sure I've got them. Anyway. Um, so you talked your way in. Yeah, talked my way in. The second thing is that in addition to being professionalised, the world has quite massively changed in the sense that the centre ground on which all journalism assumes it's addressing the audience has disappeared. This is the biggest change in my journalistic life. And it doesn't happen in the late 90s. It happens, I think, in the mid-2010s. So around about 2012, 2013, we start to see not just fake news. That's not the problem. We see the erosion of what you might call a, a forum, let's use in the in, or an agora in the Greek sense, in which civil society meets each, itself, in which one has to throw one's assertions, look, I believe this, it's true, and the, the other sides of society can take a judgment on that, that disappears. So they become two truths. They become separate bubbles created by social media. I noticed this uh, big time in the Gaza war, which I reported. Um, but that's kind of fast forwarding a bit. If we compare that time to now, the time in which I came into journalism, it's that raw talent, raw ability, could break through because the professionalization and, and the standardization of degree level education hadn't really happened. And at the same time, you hadn't had the destruction of the advertising model, which has occurred because of Google and Facebook and the rest of it. Now, this is the really interesting thing. I worked in very capitalist, private sector, advertising driven uh, editorial environments. 
Never once. And I was a, I was an editor, you know, senior. Uh, I, I had a bu- 25 staff and a budget of quite a, you know, 11 million. I never saw the scale of advertorial influence that is happening right now. In fact, editor- advertorial was a word banned in the Reed business empire. We never took any. The ad, the ad guys never asked us, what are you doing? In the end of the day, the publisher would say, the only reason we can give this product away free and get people to open it and read the editorial and the adverts at the same time is because people trust the editorial. Therefore, we, are, we don't give a shit. All right, it's not a great idea. They're going to ring us up. They're going to bawl at us down the phone, you know, whether it's Microsoft or whatever. And we repeatedly turned over the government who were responsible for millions of pounds of uh, job advertising in this magazine. We repeatedly turned them over. Um, that was the deal. Now, what's happened as a result of the big tech companies and social media, that world has also disappeared. So what you get is you get a professionalised journalism in which everybody's no hierarchized. Oh, I'm just a newbie. I'm an intern. I'm only in year one. I do as you bid. No, that's not great. But you also get the enhanced power of the advertiser, not through the advertiser's primary relationship to the to the newspaper or the, or the TV station, but through the editorial managers. The problem started when we became reliant on Facebook for traffic. Then, okay, I wouldn't say the line of the editorial changed, but the form of the editorial changed. We'd have Facebook in and YouTube, and they go, look, uh, first 30 seconds, you've lost the audience. What, you know, you, everything's got to be in the first 30 seconds. A TV reporter never thinks everything's got to be in the first 30 seconds. Many times, everything's in the last 30 seconds. You, know, you show the audience the evidence, you create thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You give your opinion, not your, your, your take, and then you give them a payoff. That is a five-minute package on Newsnight. Suddenly, or two-minute, 30 package on Channel 4. Suddenly, Facebook are saying, you need 30 seconds and we've lost the audience. So other really weird things start to happen. When I started in TV, the wide shot was a standard in TV reporting. A wide shot of a dock lands or a wide shot of a, of a war zone. Okay, you, will ne- you won't see many wide shots these days. And the reason is that they don't look good on the internet. They don't look good on a mobile phone. You can't see them. It's just it's a piece of grey matter on your phone. What you need is a human being. Now, great, the lexicon or the language of um, TV reporting used to be wide, medium, tight. Now it's medium, tight. That's quite interesting. Hollywood still does wide shots. We don't. Why? Because the medium has changed and the desire for the audience's mind not to wander off into generalities has also uh, strengthened. And so we have to live with these technological innovations, but I would say to your generation, the professionalization and therefore the hierarchy that creates, together with the less mitigated pressure from the advertisers, has created a new world. And then on top of that, the rights project of destroying a common ground of truth and verification is a big problem. And so you operate, your generation operate in a completely different world. So how do you feel that it affects the truthfulness of a piece? Or in fact, 
the scope a journalist has to tell the truth, in other words, not to produce fake news, when the format of, of a piece uh, changes that radically. And, and we're talking here mostly about broadcasting, but obviously it has affected uh, the way you write a story in, in, yeah. a, in, a, in, a, in a website nowadays. Let us remember that the problem of truth predates the Trump alt-right uh, Vladimir Putin manipulation strategy. Mm. The problem of truth in mainstream journalism is one whereby how does ideology communicate itself? Okay, it's first of all, probably many people listening to this broadcast who may have studied media or journalism will know what I'm talking about if I say ideology. That is a set of ideas that mask reality, that pervade our thinking are not created. And why? Because there are many theories of ideology. It's not just Marxism that has a theory of ideology. You know, Weberian, soci Weberian sociology kind of understands, Durkheim kind of understands what people think. Freud understands that what is in people's minds is not necessarily the truth. Okay, the one place where the word ideology is banned is the editorial decision-making arenas of the mainstream media. The BBC does not operate a theory of ideology. It's banned. You cannot say, guys, what we're doing sounds a bit ideological to me, because what will happen is somebody in that editorial meeting will say to you, you have an agenda, right? No. That's why the mainstream media, long before Trump, was purveying distorted versions of the truth. And I've seen it every day of my working life. And we fight against it. And of course, who fights against it? It's not just lefty journalists. Who fights against it are good journalists. People who say, I don't have a shit what you think, sitting in your office in London. What I've seen is X. Literally, you, you know, I covered the Kenya ethnic conflict. It was really bloody. Uh, Christmas 2007, I think it was. And I get there and all the old cameramen all the old hacks go, tell me again which tribe's fighting which. That's the classic imperialist white male attitude. Okay, which fight, well, I don't really care who's fighting who. Tell me, tell me the names again. You know, like these Africans fighting each other. You know, people being killed like within a mile of us, like really horrible things. I don't even want to talk about what happened to them. That's the attitude of the unthinking ideological media. Africans fight each other because they're just tribal. Right. Now, we want to go and tell the truth. Is there a class basis? Is one tribe the elite? Are the others being butchered in a genocide? Uh, is there, as there was in Kenya, a stolen election behind it? Do we care about the fact that one side has effectively stolen the election, violating democratic norms, and therefore it's now descended into inter-ethnic violence. Do we care about the cause or do we only focus on the reality of people stabbing each other with broken bottles and machetes? No, we care about the cause. But the further you get away from the reality and the closer you get to the editorial office of the BBC, Sky, Channel 4, the less the reality matters. And what they will do, and they'll do it without malice, they'll do it without thinking, is they will impose a narrative. The editorial managers. Now the job of the journalist is to fight the imposition of narrative and report the truth. And to me, that's what the truth is. It's the unflinching gaze at what is happening. You sent me here to find X, but I found Y. Time and again, 
And this is especially true in a hyper-ideological political media. And I, th I think The Guardian's as, 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 at times as guilty as this, uh, of this as The Mail. The editor wants to see X. So if you find Y, go and forget Y, go and find me X. That's ideology. I want a situation, and, and this is, if you're a, a journalist listening to this or an editorial manager or just anybody who wants to be a journalist, you've got to fight for the, the right to report Y when Y is true. And it fights the narrative of the center. How do you feel this then interacts for those listening who are not journalists, so who are reading The Guardian, who are watching BBC News, who still believe in a sense of this is the truth. Ah, yeah, you see, no, I think that's also a problem of ideology. The ideology exists in the minds of the reader, the, or listener, or viewer. Uh, the ideology that Africans fight each other because they are tribal is, is a Western imperialist white ideology. Now, I have to be able to translate for that viewer in one minute, 30 seconds, in one minute, 30 seconds, the truth so they can understand it. And so I have to acknowledge in some way what their preconception is. It's quite hard in one minute, 30 seconds. There used to be a famous editor of the BBC Six O'Clock News Bulletin who said to people this, your job is to make a woman who is spoon feeding her toddler baby food at six o'clock, look away from the toddler and go, oh, look what just happened in the world and then turn back and feed the toddler. That's your only job. Now, it's so easy to do that if, what, if the image you put on is of a, an African person with a machete wound in their head, right? That is a really good way of getting a mum feeding her toddler to stop feeding her toddler. Does it help understanding? I argue no. Uh, I would rather have a white guy in a bow tie say, um, violence broke out today in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi after the election was stolen by a party aligned to the existing government. I'd rather do that and the woman carries on feeding her kid because at least she doesn't know bullshit mm. then. So we journalists, we are the guardians of the truth that we experience, no matter how uncomfortable it is, and our Heroes and heroines from Gellhorn and Or Orwell onwards should be the people who teach us how to do that. Orwell says, I'm, I was brought up to say the working class smell. And he says, when I get close to them, they do smell. To me, they smell funny. How honest is that? He could have wrote, they don't, they're heroic, but he didn't. He said, no, I, I'm revolted by the smell of a working class person next to me because it doesn't smell like me. Um, that's honesty. Uh, Michael Herr in Dispatches, Pilger, Pilger in his Vietnam reporting. These are the high points of honest reporting that I grew up around. And I see it done well uh, every day, but there are other obstacles created. And this is where we do need to talk about Trump, Putin, the ideologists of fake news and the way journalism has reacted to them. Quite. So, so please do, from, particularly from your experience. Um, I mean, we do have what we do have in terms of, of a political and journalistic scenario, as it stands. How do lefting journalists, how does the left combat that, short of, although we can talk about that, producing its own version yeah. of, of okay. ideological... The first, thing that, the first thing I would say is we need to understand the recent history of the social media. There's no book 
in which the recent history of the social media has been adequately uh, chronicled. And it, but it goes Not like even this. even in your own? Uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to do everywhere. that in my next one. In my next one. But even there, I think a professional uh, and, and forensic version would take, take longer. It's this. 2011, social media is used to blow up the world. Mass struggles by networked people. The first response of those in power is to issue propaganda. But as I wrote in Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, social media destroys propaganda. You know, if Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's spin doctor, says X and it's not true, a million people can reply to them in a second later. So what's the response? The next response is to shut down the internet. That's what, uh, that's what the Mubarak did in Egypt. It's what uh, Erdogan tried to do in, in, uh, in Turkey. Um, but that doesn't work. You, can't, you can shut it down, but it doesn't really work. So first response, shut down. Next response, the bubble. So you create rival bubbles. And we saw this in Gaza. You know, I was big in the bubble of reporting Gaza, but I was really disappointed that my reporting wasn't really being read at all by Israelis, pro-government pro, uh, Israelis anyway. Only one newspaper straddled both bubbles, and that was Haaretz, uh, the, the liberal uh, newspaper in, in Israel itself, which I think they should be congratulated for. The BBC didn't. BBC was overwhelmingly read by pro-Palestinians, and certainly ITN, Channel 4, where I was, overwhelmingly. Uh, and in a big way. And I'm really proud of that, but I wish I could have crossed over more. So the bubble is an incredibly important weapon for the right. The, it seals off their, their supporters from rationality, and it means they have their own rationality. But the bubble itself, again, is not enough. The bubble has to be fed. So this is why you then get the Breitbart, the Drudge Report, uh, the, the Infowars, they have to feed the bubble with fake news. The bubble is the client for fake news. Fake news is the supplier in, in this sense. You know, the fake news purveyors. And again, then there's a sub-question of how the, how the ecosystem of fake news works. It works like this. The far right create absolute bullshit. Far right disreputable grassroots sites with no oversight and no journalists create bullshit. Okay? Then the what is called the alt-light, the, the info wars and the Breitbart, and all, you know, they feed it and they create a, a patina of respectability for it. They, create, they put it into journalistic form, but it's just propaganda, it's just lies. And then, really, really importantly, Fox News gives it complete, it, it, Fox News takes it into the living room of these fucking idiots evangelical fucking idiots in America who believe it. Okay, let's call them that. That's the technical scientific term for who they are, right? Now, what, what's the problem there? Um, problem there is, number one, you've got a serious capitalist, Rupert Murdoch, making money out of this. That's number one. I don't care about Drudge, Breitbart, Infowars. They're just bullshit news purveyors. And the others are propagandists. But that ecosystem feeds off itself. Um, what that then does is, it, is that it then, and I don't think this, this already began under neoliberalism for, for, for reasons we could come back to. You've got the erosion of a common ground of rationality. See, I can say one plus one equals two, but if the, if the, but if the outcome of that deduction is or if the outcome of that calculation is not, is not to the liking of 
Fox News and Infowars, they will try and run a story that says one and one equals not equals five. You know, in the sense that there is no longer a kind of bourgeois centrist media in which capitalism is relying on the media to process truth for its own benefit. And let's look at what 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 the why you needed that in a corporate capitalism where you really do have to know whether the share price of Microsoft reflects its underlying value, you need a journalist to attack the figures. You need to say, this is true, this is false. Journalism in the corporate era came to fulfil a function for capitalism of testing the truth claims of capitalists against each other. My product uh, cures illness X. Well, no, it doesn't. It's a scam. You know, don't buy it. Your share price is worthless. Uh, my energy company, Enron, is worth X. No, it isn't. You know, so journalism, famously, is tests the truth claims of one capitalist against another. That's, that's important. Now, I think what happened, I don't think this is unrelated to the financial crisis. Financial crisis created a capitalism in which all capitalism is un- ultimately unable to fail. It's always reliant on free or cheap money from the central bank. And therefore, the the need for these truth claims diminishes. And you then get the erosion of the common ground. And this common ground, remember, was created, I think, in the mid-19th century uh, through the journalism of the great social reformers of the 19th century. And I think it lasts till about 2013, and then it disappears. It disappears sporadically under under fascist regimes, Germany in the 1930s. There's no common ground, no need for truth, no challenge. But really, for it to disappear in a democracy is quite a big thing. So let's recap the story. Close down the internet doesn't work. Create the bubble doesn't work. It doesn't work in the end. Why so? Because you still get the rival truth claim and, and actually, in a place like Britain, where you've got a state-funded uh, impartial media, uh, regulated, I, broadcast media, regulated by law, so the editor can lose their job if they're not impartial, and you have a culture of journalism that, you know, the, the culture that I've worked in for 25 years is not just me, it's a load of people. They want the truth. So... It doesn't work because the BBC can take a story like Corbyn's a Czech spy and destroy it. So you can make how many claims in your bubble, Corbyn is a Czech spy, he's a Stasi agent, but even a relatively sort of right-wing journalist like Andrew Neil will knock it down. Um, So you need something else. And the something else that you need is to flood the entire system with bullshit. And that's where fake news comes into its own. In the bubble phase, fake news is just the supplier for half the ecosystem. In the Trump and Putin post-2016 phase, fake news is there to destroy the system. It's to destroy people's trust in all news. And we know that from trolling and uh, troll farms worked even in the bulletin board era. Putin was running troll farms in the early 2000s and their aim, overtly from people who've, we've got interviews with people who worked in them, is they were told fill the conversation with hostility and bullshit so that people don't want to have the conversation. The capitalists who, tr- who support Trump, the hedge fund guys like Robert Mercer, they, they don't, they trade chaos. You know, if you have a computer algorithm can, that can outthink the market, then the more chaotic the market, the better for your, your algorithm will make more money. It's, it's betting on higher odds. 
And also you've got these um, capitalist anarchists like the Koch brothers. So the Koch brothers aren't just kind of small state capitalists. They want no state. They want a capitalism in which there is no state to arbitrate between capitals. And one capital that is strong, i.e. Koch Industries, can, can basically pollute any river. It can frack any... any uh, you know, riverbed, it can destroy any town, with, like Flint, Michigan. You know, Flint, Michigan and the water supply crisis there is a great example of what you have when there's no state. That's the, that's the capitalism that Koch brothers want, otherwise known as chaos. So chaos capitalism from Russia to Venezuela to Brazil to America has a very strong interest in destroying common criteria for what is true. And to reiterate, I think this is a history. It's not a sudden thing. It's they tried one thing, censorship. They tried another thing, the, the rival bubbles. And finally, they concluded that the bubble itself is not enough, that, that we must destroy people's belief in verifiability. And that's what we, we journalists today are up against. And it's a very different problem than the problem of the old neoliberal system when it was functioning, which was when it was just market propaganda. You know, business good, unions bad. That's one kind of ideology. The ideology of chaos capitalism is that nothing is true. And if you're a journalist, it means it's an existential challenge to you. And that's good because it means I can unite with even quite right-wing neoliberal journalists who nevertheless have at heart the idea that we want to recreate a zone of verifiability called the news. And I will ally with them although I disagree with them about the outcome, this is social outcome I want, to defend that against the, the Putin, Trump, Duterte, you know, Modi in India attempt to flood the infosphere with fakeness to the extent that everybody just relies on their own experience. Because this is the outcome. What, what's the outcome? What complete individualisation. Yeah, complete individualisation. What do I know is true is what I can see at the end of my nose, between my nose and my fingertip, is true. Everything else could be, like in the Matrix, just being made up by a computer. That is helplessness, and that's exactly where the rich want us. I kind of wanted to take a step back and ask you about, because because you got involved in a polemic with the Morning Star very recently, which is a, a paper from the Communist Party of Britain. Uh, it is supported by the trade unions and it has a series of Labour MPs as its um, opinion writers. Um, it's also where I started doing yeah. my journalistic career. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a very useful conversation to have about the usefulness of having effectively I, I would or maybe it's a question if these are effectively just left-wing um, versions of these bubbles you were talking about before and what the usefulness of that is because obviously when Jeremy Corbyn stormed the Labour Party and, and the movement grew exponentially there was a bit of a question whether the the party shouldn't start its own publication in in the vein of Iskra or or, or Pravda or something. <coughs> shouldn't be. Yeah. Look, we're sitting in a Weatherspoons pub. Yeah. And George Orwell famously wrote, which inspired Weatherspoons, what would be the ideal pub? He called it the Moon Underwater, and this actually was the inspiration for the first ever Weatherspoons pub. Now, I would like well, to answer your question by doing that for publication. What would be the ideal British pub? What would be the ideal left-wing publication? Okay, not the Morning Star. It does some good reporting and it, and it trains reporters quite rigorously and it does a bit of investigation, although with the resources it got, it's got, it can't do much. 
the ideal left publication would be a news publication. There's loads of comment publications because you can set up a comment publication on your own. You know, I've got a blog and I blog my comments. But to do news, it's got to be rigorous. It's got to be peer-reviewed, you know, the, the, the harsh peer review of the newsroom. And it needs resources to withstand legal challenge. Le you know, the, the, the powerful have got lawyers on the go all the time attacking you. So you need resources. And if I, you know, if I have one frustration with the left, both here in the United States, it's that they don't throw the resources at news reporting. Let's be absolutely honest. There's not a single publication in Britain that supports, let alone Corbyn, but the general left that Corbyn comes from in a, in a way that throws news resources at it. What you've got is the right throwing their news resources at the, against the left. Let's understand what that means. You know, it is legitimate to pursue somebody in power down the street asking them questions. It's legitimate to go through their bin bags. It's absolutely legitimate. If you think somebody's done wrong, there's a public interest in pursuing them. So all of that firepower is turned against the left, and yet the left has, does hardly anything wrong. There are a few wrongdoers, a few corrupt people, a few liars on the left, but in general, the left is honest because it's poor. The right represents the elite. The right are having corrupt deals, uh, sweetheart deals. You know, this deal whereby the British state um, hired a ferry company for £14 million that hadn't got any... any boats. Boats, but not just that, but that its website was copied and pasted from a pizza uh, delivery. Yeah, Uber, Uber Eats, something like that. Yeah. Deliveroo. Yeah. yeah. Um, we need to... No, how do you investigate that? It is legitimate to do many, many tactics to investigate that. But we don't have the first ability to... We haven't, you know, so what you then get is the liberal centrist press, like The Guardian, which I occasionally write for, that, you know, they don't have the ability to... Nor, I think, the desire to really take apart the British elite. Um, they just don't have the desire to do it. Um, and I think... So my ideal would be a news website with a video capacity... Um, that did much less comment. We kind of all know what the left thinks. The left has to find shit out about the bourgeoisie and the corrupt oligarchs who run the society. You know, how look, can we do that? How, how we need can money. We, we need a lot of money. We need, you know, we need, we need millions. You need millions uh, a year. And without millions a year, don't even, you, you can start, I mean, I really admire the, the small-scale publications who try and do a little bit of news reporting, a little bit of digging around. Um, but without millions, um, you know, people who want society to change, you know, our grandparents, what did they do? You know, when, when they joined unions, they put their money together to create little outlets, little news outlets. Uh, the Clarion, you know, was the first British left-wing publication of any note. It used to have a van in every working-class town. The van sold the newspaper. I think ultimately... The Gilets Jaunes in, uh, in France have ended up, and I don't quite understand how they've got this, they've actually ended up with quite a decent TV, um, internet TV station. Uh, Podemos in Spain has an internet TV station um, funded by uh, a media empire called Publico S. I know... A liberal. Yeah, uh, but... So we, the interesting thing is our liberal bourgeoisie doesn't want to put its money behind anything left-wing. But the Gilets Jaunes thing is interesting. I think their their stuff it's it, it's not it's it's a mixture. This is what we you know right now, not in two years' time, right now in the British left, exactly what we need. It's a mixture of on the ground video reports showing the police kicking the shit out of the Gilets Jaunes, 
and then it's interviews with gilets jaunes where they reinforce and, and, and discuss what they're trying to do because civil society is all about discussion and, and challenge. And then there's this amazing woman who stands there and delivers these rants and she's just absolutely beautiful and she's absolutely convincing and she's a, a senior journalist and she just says, you know, fuck you, Macron. No, that's what we kind of need. We, that, I'd, I'd settle for that, but I bet, I bet, it's, I bet its budget, budget runs into millions and that's some left French capitalist. And of course, the France Insoumise uh, party has put resources behind that. We need that. American journalism has constitutional right. It's the fourth estate. It, it, there is a right to free speech, and journalism is there constitutionally in, in the constitution as the fourth estate. And, and in Britain, we're not. A, we don't have a constitution. B, it's the, it, journalism has always been so close to the establishment. Um, so, well, well, precisely, again, if we look at the class forces at play, in the United States, in America, you have a panoply of capitalism that is sort of, uh, or capital that is combating each other, whilst here you have a very structured top-down understanding of establishment in which there isn't even a variety heterogeneous enough to combat each other, to create a space... Let, let, let's remember what's happened in British society. In the 1980s, the capitalists took on and defeated and smashed one of the most powerful labour movements in the world. Um, even if you weren't born then, you're still living with the consequence because the consequence was they also smashed objective journalism to do it. The entire resources of the ruling class had to be mobilised to destroy the miners, destroy the society I came from. That didn't happen in America. You know, of course you had the Patco strike where the, the, the air traffic controllers ended up in chains. But in the Reagan era didn't have to smash civil society in the way that, Brit that Thatcherism did. Now as a result... I think, you know, we've only got two left-wing newspapers, The Guardian and The Mirror. The Mirror is just a shadow of a newspaper, and The Guardian is the left-centrist uh, elite. Um, no newspaper wakes up to it, thinking to itself, how do we take on the elite? No newspaper. But whereas in America, paradoxically, because you've got this bipartisan politics, which has been shattered, Republican-Democrat, journalists can wake up and say, in the morning, how do I take down... Coke Industries. How do I take down Microsoft today? And they do. The woman, the young journalist who took down Enron, was monstered by Enron. You know, she was. You know, they visited her, her, her magazine HQ, and said, "Your journalist is going to put us out of business." And they said, "So what?" No, I, I. I'm sorry. I. There's no part of the British media where I can imagine ever getting to that point. Um, that's really sad, but I see it with my longer view of history as the result of what had to happen inside the British elite for them to smash us. Um, they had to more or less co-opt the whole of the media so that the media for, you know, the male do good, good reporting journalists, the Sun occasionally does good reporting journalism, but it's all done for a reason. And the reason is to keep that, to, to, to stop the reversal, because this is what's on the agenda, again. Um, if Bernie Sanders wins a, a presidential election, it'll be absolutely amazing and there'll be a sea change in America. But if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister, we're going to reverse that 30-year-long defeat and they know it. And that's why all the journalistic resources of those with money is devoted to destroying Corbyn and Corbynism. Mm. Okay, brilliant. That's a good point to then go on to the last question, which is a bit more interactive perhaps than just the question. And for that, I've, I've dug out... Uh, something you wrote uh, back in 2010. It's called 10 bullet points for NUJ student conference. 
um, getting started in journalism, it's a set, 10 bullet points with advice. They're very long because they have subheadings. Um, I'll just read out the points specifically themselves. Um, we've really already approached most of them, but I kind of wanted you to go uh, and, and comment on it. So I'll just, I'll just list them first and foremost. So number one, be good at journalism, one would hope. Two, specialize in something. Three, be low maintenance and zero bullshit. Four, read widely, read fast, and read grown-up stuff. And read things that were written before you were born, because most of your audience have also read those. I, I kind of feel that the left is not too bad at that. It's, it's, it's liberals who are obsessed with Harry Potter. Uh, but <laughs> no, true. Anyway, just to finish off, so number five, write well, write fast, and write translucent prose. Like Orwell tells uh, us to. Number six, manage your contacts, importantly. Uh, seven, it's connected to that. It's network relentlessly. I, I would vouch for that. Eight, abandon your ideology. We've already approached mm. that point. Nine, what is your story? So know what you're writing about effectively. And 10, be the journalist you're trying to be. Yeah. So give us, give us your own download, the 2019 version of the 10 points. Um, and uh, yeah, what would you advise aspiring journalists to have in mind. Right, that number one, be good at journalism, um, is even more important, that find things out and verify them. And also, I think you then have to, there would be a point zero that I haven't put here, that as you approach the job, you know, so the assignment, you have to agree with your editors what you're trying to do. And, and you know, if I fly to Kenya to cover an ethnic conflict, I'm going to agree with my, my editors, look, this is a complicated thing, mate, and if I find something that doesn't quite fit with what you think, are you prepared to go with it? On that basis, I am going to go and risk my neck from being macheted. Uh, but if you're just wanting me to illustrate your thesis, get lost. That's a polite way of putting it. So you have to have those conversations with it's people. It's a difficult position to put a lot of journalists in when they don't have another source of income. No, this is, this is what, you know, I, I would really say, yes, it is, but, but it's the same uh, when a factory worker said fuck off to their boss in the 19th century. They were in the same position. They, again and again, they said, they said, no, I'm not going to do what you ask me. I'm going to do what the job demands. That's how workers took effective control of production in the 19th century. Journalists used to have control of the production of truth, and now we're being managed by ideologists, and we need to fight back against them. So that's what point zero would be. But yeah, it's especially needy, it's especially needed for us to, to prove that we are writing the truth. And you can't get away any longer with some of the sort of uh, reportage sort of shortcuts that Orwell and even people like like Pilger's generation and you know there's this famous journalist Robert Fisk who I really look up to but is now seen as you know it's often all his stories are challenged for detail because the detail has to be right you can't use literary kind of uh, kludging together two characters anymore, which is your, people, what Orwell used to do and what Tom Wolfe's uh, generation would do. Richard Kapuscinski. <clears throat> yeah. Could yeah. Go on. Yeah. No. So, so that that school of journalism, we could still do that kind of journalism, but you've got to you've got to uh, observe the complexities. Last but not least, the question that I like to to close these chats with is, what are you reading right now? I'm reading a lot about the Spanish Civil War because I'm working on several. Uh, writing projects about it and I've been reading in the archives the work of a left-wing journalist so let's end on her Catherine Wise Bowler 
uh, Kitty Bowler, as she was called, who was an East Coast American uh, alumni of one of the big colleges and threw herself into the Spanish Civil War in quite an amazing way. What I've had her notebook in my hand and her notebook is shit like most of my notebooks are. They start with 10 numbers you're meant to phone and then the notes start and, and then it all peters out because she kind of switches to a different form of journalism. Uh, and I've read her, the stories that she writes and tried to submit and submitted and didn't get published. Some of them are brilliant. They're good, great, you know, Hemingway-style reportage of an occupied factory in Barcelona that about half the story gets cut and she gets it into a, another story, you know, another report later. Um, it really made me feel for, that's the way I go into, into all stories, with a notebook, with five contacts, a mentorphone, and then you get sidetracked, and then the rest of the, the notebook becomes really shit. Um, so so, so I'm, I'm reading about this incredibly, tra it's incredibly tragic story of people who went from all over the world into Spain to fight fascism and how quickly dis disillusioned they became because they ran into Stalinism and its it, unerring ability to destroy everything it touches. You know, it's not just a story of one-way heroism, which is what Hemingway tried to make out of it, and, and also in a way Langston Hughes does. Um, it's, a, it's a story of heroism and heroinism um, that very quickly realises shit. That's, as Orwell said, we're up against two lies here, fascism and Stalinism. And, and what do we do? The, and we have incredibly, incredibly clear lessons to learn from the journalists who did come back from that war telling the truth. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming. I am Jonah Ramiro, and this was Red Hacks, a series of conversations about journalism, socialism, and being a journalist in a neoliberal world, hosted by Politics Theory Other podcast. If you'd like to listen to more shows like this, don't forget to like us on Facebook, subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes, and leave a review. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other. <laughs> <laughs>